I'm Alexandra Joe, Director of Outreach and Education at Parting Stone, and this is the Death Care Decoded Podcast. In this podcast, we explore trends in the death profession, uncovering valuable insights through conversations with industry thought leaders. Our mission is to bring forward-thinking education to death care professionals. This week, I return to my conversation with Tiana Dargent, founder of Queer Community Death Care in Ontario, Canada, to talk about how to make death and end-of-life care a safer space for the LGBTQIA population. We talk about specific roadblocks this community has to receiving safe and equitable care, why more queer-identifying death care workers are a good thing, and some steps that death care businesses can take to better understand and serve the specific end-of-life needs of this population. You're jumping into a conversation with myself and Tiana Dargent. You mentioned that you do workshops with funeral professionals. Yes. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what those are? Yeah, so... I do a few different things. One is that I've been invited to come back to the program where I trained and it trains, you know, regular people who are not funeral professionals who are just curious or who want to move into death care in some way. Um, And then people from all kinds of different health and death care backgrounds who are just taking it as increased learning. So I've been invited back Mm -hmm. by the director to do a module on queer inclusive end of life care. And so I teach that module there. And I've also taught it to a few other Canadian organizations that either like a doula association, um, medical assistance in dying organization. And so all of these um, organizations just have a people with mixes of backgrounds. And so in that, it's like a, it's a two hour, why is even thinking about queerness important kind of thing. So in mm-hmm. there, I do like a bit of history of queer community, starting with, um, in Canada, the decriminalization of being homosexual and the relationship of queerness with the medical industrial complex over time to now to give a context about why um, queer people have a negative relationship with healthcare and end-of-life care and why it might be difficult mm-hmm. to earn the community's trust. So kind of setting the stage there. And then I get into like the, what I call very basic things, uh, which are things that I would not be teaching to people in the queer community, but things like what do all the letters and the acronyms mean? Um, and mm-hmm. how, what are pronouns? And like, when should you be asking about them all the time? <laughs> um, mm-hmm. You know, how to use yes. gender neutral language, things like that. So we go through uh, personal things that people can do to be more inclusive, interpersonal things people could do to be more inclusive, and systemic things that people within organizations can do to be more inclusive. So we just like kind of hit the nail on a few different topics so that everyone can walk away feeling like they have one or two tools to affect change in the area that they have control over. Mm-hmm. And after that, I started moving into doing consultations for organizations directly. So this will be, um, I'm brought in to look at their processes, their intake forms, you know, what is a person's experience coming in to get service from them from start to finish. And I just look for things that are roadblocks to care and make suggestions for how they can change that to be more accessible, easier, less taxing, um, 
you know, things like you can change your forms in these ways. Uh, you can give training to these folks on these topics. Um, very practical things where people want to do better in their organizations, but don't exactly know how. So I just kind of go in and rummage around in all of their like policies and procedures and come out and give them suggestions and action plans. I find it really great. enjoyable. I'm like definitely a procedures manual kind of person. <laughs> so <laughs> I love it. I'm just like, and now this is formalized in your procedures. You must do it. <laughs> love that. Yeah. Really love that. Yeah. It's really interesting. Yeah. It's interesting because, you know, it could be a doula who's just like a one person who's like, oh, I don't know how to do this. So it's like very personal in that case, like um, a real hand-holding walkthrough. Or it can be a large organization that's just like, well, we need to check off the diversity inclusion checklist and whatever it is. So, But in the end, it does improve services to the queer community, which is my goal. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What are some of the most common roadblocks that you've seen across the board? Oh, basically uh, assumptions that people make about who a person walking through their doors is. You know, we make a lot of assumptions every day based on how people look, how they sound, how they dress, how they interact with you. And we rely on those. Everybody relies on those all the time. And it's about kind of training ourselves out of making them in, in certain aspects. Mm -hmm. So yeah, assuming people's genders, assuming people's pronouns based on their name. You don't know. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you can't mm -hmm. know a person's mm -hmm. name or pronouns by looking at them. And so I always suggest, you know, offer your pronouns anytime you offer your name. They go together. And yeah. um, another one that comes up a lot, actually more on the side of my death cafes, is people who are reluctant to seek health care because they have negative experiences with the healthcare system, mostly trans folks, because trans healthcare is, I know in the States it's under attack in terrible ways. In Canada, it's not so much mm -hmm. under attack, but it's not well researched or well supported. And so mm -hmm. folks have just terrible medical experiences. It is a struggle every moment of every day. Um, trans folks have to become basically medical experts themselves to advocate for what they need in the face of um, mm -hmm. medical professionals who actually don't know that much about it. Um, and so when there's something else that's wrong, they're not excited to go to the doctor and find out, you know, they're not seeking treatment as early as they should be. Um, and it exacerbates their health problems and often leads to premature death because something that was treatable or preventable um, gets beyond that point. And um, so I think the major roadblock is trust in the medical system um, based on prior experience. Yeah, that's a huge one. And yeah, I, I don't even know where to start or begin about the attack on trans rights and trans healthcare access in the United States. Yeah, I don't. Right now. I am, like, so I just, please I don't move here. Just move that. here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, like done. Love it. Um, yeah. No, it's uh, yeah. It's, oh my gosh, I want to start a commune for all my American friends. <laughs> yeah, please do, <laughs> and then let us know because yikes. 
No, it's, you know, but then I also, as a triple Aries, I also have the urge to like dig my heels in and Mm -hmm. demand better from my home and where I live. And it's just as someone who is very close to and have very intimate relationships with a lot of people in the trans community. And it's alarming and horrifying Mm -hmm. and really scary and makes me want to put my elbow spikes on and take up my battle axe and do something about it. But Um, but yeah, what can you do in the U S so all of that to say, as far as funeral professionals and funeral businesses go, like knowing that the medical system is such a nightmare for these folks and insurance access to like gender affirming care or regular healthcare in general, without having to be afraid, have it explained, Mm -hmm. whatever. Also the exorbitantly high, high rate of homicide amongst particularly black trans femmes in the United States still. I mean, that yes. in and of itself is a, an epidemic or not a pan- pandemic, not the right word, but um, something that's happening, you know, that yeah. that makes death and dying mm-hmm. more of a reality and more of a looming threat for that community anyway. And Mm -hmm. the fact that death care is so far behind caring for and knowing how to care for and handle the, the delicacies of someone whose family of origin may be distanced from them and their chosen family knows who they are and what their wishes would have been. But law points to blood kin and there's non-consensual degendering going That's on. Right. And there are there's there are no laws in place to protect this person's autonomy or personhood or humanity. And the fact that a lot of funeral directors, you know, don't know what to do other than like look to, well, the law says this, you know, is a real disservice to an entire population mm-hmm. of people, um, on top of, you know, yes. how those people are treated while they're alive and dealing with medical issues and, and all of those things. So it's just this whole big box of problems. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's it. I mean, in my death cafes, especially I hear like an alarming number of stories of people who say my friend disappeared. Don't know where my friend was for six months two years, five years, finally found out that my friend died and their family got the body and buried them under their dead name, buried them in their old clothes, didn't tell anybody in the community. And so there's all of this grief just piling on about not being able to honor people the way that they lived in their death, about not being able to honor them in a timely way, um, about being afraid of what will happen to you, not having the understanding of what you can do to prepare in advance your own wishes so that you can protect your autonomy and death because you have to plan it ahead of time to be able to do that. Um, It's a lot of grief. It's so much grief and um, it's frightening. It's frightening and our community is under-resourced. I mean, you know, Queer and trans people generally are poorer um, than the majority of folks. They don't have the luxury of time and uh, monetary access to, like, find a supportive network in end-of-life care. Um, and so it's really, like, 
street medics. It's um, a community network where it's just like, okay, well, we know we only have each other to rely on. And so let's take care of each other in death. Let's, you know, maybe not notify somebody about the death because we know that they won't be honored. Um, it's doing all the workarounds that our community is known to do for the dawn of time to mm -hmm. work around the illegalities mm -hmm. of our existence. Um, and it's, it's doing those while also working to change them because we can be out now. We can mm -hmm. advocate for ourselves now. Um, you know, our, an entire generation of our ancestors were kind of decimated due mm -hmm. to AIDS mm -hmm. in U.S. and Canada and globally. And those people did not, you know, age out of their lives. They all kind of died young and now we're at the point where the next generation is wanting to go into hospice is wanting to mm -hmm. be well cared for in death is saying you know I have my rights now um, and I've been exercising them and advocating for them in all these other areas of life but we haven't been in death care spaces mm -hmm. for a long time because we haven't had the opportunity to be cared for in death because we were not cared for in the 80s and 90s at all. And then the people who did care for us, who were the other queer members who died, were dying after that, did not want to enter those spaces because they knew mm -hmm. they would not be cared for. And so we are really the first generation that's engaging with mm -hmm. this on a systemic level. Yeah, I, I think that's right, because I go to death care conferences around the U.S. and give presentations and lectures about my research. And Mm -hmm. every it's I go to them rapidly and it seems like every single time I go there's more and more younger like mortuary school students coming up seeing my little like rainbow pin and being like oh my brother is trans or oh I'm gay too and like this is my partner and and we're we we really mm -hmm. want to become funeral directors or we really want to become hospice worker and they're just they're here and and I think that that's wonderful but what I also have found, which is really interesting, and I'm curious to hear your take on this, is that there was a study done on, um, it was not a super inclusive study. It was not done by queer folks. It was just surveying lesbian women and gay men. So like two very specific categories mm -hmm. in that larger queer umbrella. But yeah. among those two populations, as of 2011... They surveyed people that identified in those two ways about what jobs they had and then ranked which jobs were most common. Mm -hmm. And funeral director mm -hmm. slash funeral professional was number 11 on a list of 21 jobs. Wow. I know. And I was like, <laughs> where are you? <laughs> you know, like... <laughs> Right. Um, because the yeah. business and industry, as it calls itself, is so not queer. It's so white and so Christian. Yeah. But getting to go to these conferences, getting to know people in this. They're here. They're just very quiet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're probably I mean, they're probably dispersed. Um, it's, they're probably the only queer person mm -hmm. where they're working. They might not be out. Mm -hmm. They might not be loud. They might not be advocating. They might just be mm -hmm. present, um, which is great. Presence is a great mm -hmm. first step. Um, but there needs to be, uh, 
more of a groundswell, you know? Um, yeah, I don't know. I just have this dream of like every city having a, a queer funeral home, you know? That Wouldn't would that be, be lovely. lovely. I don't know. It might be like a separatist dream though. Maybe it's nicer to think of well, something more maybe, integrated, but maybe that's step two. Maybe just like a queer run funeral home that's for anyone and everyone mm -hmm. but like you know sure. <laughs> I've recently had this conversation with my community here a group of the queer community in Santa Fe my dear friend Audrey just founded an all queer burlesque troupe that I perform and produce and direct mm. in and we are getting a lot of attention and traction and are having huge success just since January. We've had like 10 shows that have all sold out and like there's tons of community support here and it's really magical scene to be taking off. But we've had a lot of people come up and be like, I want to be in the troupe and we'll be like, great. Are you queer? And they'll be like, no. And we're like, well, there's a lot of other burlesque troops in Santa Fe and they're like, that's not fair. Y'all are the best one. And, you know, but for the production team over and over again is like, we want to make this space for that's safe for us, that it operates, you know, outside mm -hmm. of the traditional burlesque of a femme body for a male gaze and, you know, fucks with gender norms and fucks with gender expression and all these other things that are not part of normal burlesque troops. And so I think that some people might look at that and say it's separatist, but it's also mm -hmm. not. It's creating the safe space that we don't have in what exists already. And, you know. That's exactly Yeah. It. I've been asked a few times why. Um, oh, first I should say. Um, I offer, like, doula services. I don't do a lot of doula services. But I offer, um, like, kind of one slot at a time mm -hmm. um, for free to members mm -hmm. of the queer community. And I've been asked a few times by people, why would I not offer my free services to people who are not members of the queer community? Which I'm kind of like surprised by every time because it's a community that actually is underserved um, and is equity deserving and um, is actually like my friendship mm -hmm. community. Like nine times out of 10, these are people I know in some way or am close to one of the people mm -hmm. that they are close to. Um, and so I feel kind of offended when somebody's like, well, why can't a stranger you don't know have your free services? <laughs> so part of me is just like, because it's my time and my energy. Yeah. Um, but also like, it's important for me to put my time and my energy to feeding my community members um, meeting their needs, um, not taking from them financially if that's not something that they're capable of doing, you know, like this is a community building exercise mm -hmm. for the community that I am a part mm -hmm. of. I'm not trying to, you know, save every person who's dying <laughs> or something like that. Like I have um, an interest in supporting the people that I care about who also support mm -hmm. me um, in in other ways, um, yeah. either by, you know, being lovely people in my life or um, being gardening pals or whatever it is. Like, this is something that I have knowledge and some expertise in that I can offer mm -hmm. to them as a mm -hmm. gift. Yeah. And, you know, there are literally thousands of doulas 
in this province, if not the city, who can serve the straight community with no problem whatsoever. Um, none of them need my my specific right. energy. Yep. And and you know that energy is probably very wonderful. And if they want it, then they can pay you for your time and services. Well, that's it. Like I'll do <laughs> uh, for queer folks. I'll do all of these things for free. Like no question. Um, but any any organization that aims to like educate straight people or one on one serve straight people, I'm like you can mm-hmm. pay me. <laughs> you can pay me because that's money that I give get from you and put back into my community and it's a redistribution of wealth absolutely um, serves to make things equitable yes because it is it it's equity yeah and and that redistribution of resources and Mm -hmm. is part of that i love that a lot yeah yeah that's right and i take um through my website i accept uh donations from folks and people make donations and then those donations are then used to support another queer person in getting end-of-life care from me. Um, and so I've had people who were able to kind of like sponsor my time for two folks at end of life. And that's been really helpful because then I can help more people at a time. Right now I can do one person or family unit Mm -hmm. or kinship network at one time, um, because that's what I have time to Mm -hmm. do unpaid. And otherwise when people make donations, I can expand that service. That's awesome. Okay. And, um, want to do a quick little podcast plug for your website where they could like listeners could find that if they're looking oh, for it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, my website is queer community, death care, all one word.ca and it's in the pay it forward section. Awesome. If anybody wants to make a donation to support. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. I'll link to that for sure. Yeah. A cu- okay. So a couple of other things that I did want to touch on. What, so if a listener in the U.S. is listening to this and is like, I want to do more mm-hmm. for my queer community, I want to become more of a safe space for queer people seeking, you know, funeral care after a death, um, what are some suggestions you would have for them? Yeah, for a business, there are actually lots of lovely um, training organizations available in the U.S. that do like equity and diversity training. Um, So I would really suggest that folks like bring in a team of people who are queer to teach them about queer history, to teach them about the challenges in their specific community, because as I understand it, state by state, things can be very different. Um, and just to get an understanding of what's happening. But even if you don't want training, make connections with queer community organizations. They know what their needs are. You can reach out to whatever is around you, like, um, I don't know, like a Rainbow Health Network or something like that, and say, I want to collaborate with you to better serve our community what's happening? How can we do that? Let's talk with each other and figure out what the needs are of the people here and how we can work together to best support them. I mean, these organizations already exist. They're already looking, I mean, they're constantly looking for funding or opportunities or um, sponsorships or partnerships to support what they do. They would be happy to receive an offer other than uh instead of going like begging mm-hmm, folks, mm-hmm. you know, um, they're all, they're always looking for opportunities. So, you know, take the first step yourself, be proactive, reach out and make a connection. Yeah, that's excellent advice. That's very, very, yeah, 
good, spot on. <laughs> and then, so yeah, you actually kind of asked uh, just a person in the community. Um, do you have advice for just someone in the community mm-hmm. that wants to be more of a an ally or a safe yeah, space? Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I think um, I think making I think it's kind of the same answer, but instead of reaching out to an organization, make personal connections mm-hmm. with people in the community. You can volunteer somewhere. You can make new friends. Um, if you're uh, not exactly sure how to make a new queer friend, you can follow um, 20 new queer people on social media and just kind of get to know what's happening mm-hmm. in their lives and the things that are important mm-hmm. to them. Um, I think when we have personal relationships and become invested in the well-being of people who are different than ourselves, we then understand better how to make better choices in our lives to help them or to, I don't know, like just your perspective Mm -hmm. changes. I know I try, I try to be connected with people who are different than me all the time. There are so many people who are different than me. It's a lifetime job. (laughs) I'll never get it completely perfectly right. But yeah, just, you know, be invested in other people a little bit with your time, with your kindness, with your energy, um, and and just be open to learning continually yes. Yes. as you go. Oh, yes. It is so wonderful to meet you, and I appreciate you coming on the podcast so Yeah, much. this was a great conversation. Good. Yeah. Thank you. Here's a thank you note from one of Parting Stone's happy families. We were so fortunate to have my wife's remains preserved in Parting Stones earlier this year. We've found them to be a wonderful and easy way to share her memory with family members and close friends. I take a stone with me whenever I travel as it provides a degree of comfort to have part of her near me. 